Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. And I know what you're thinking I'm thinking about this morning, um, if you know me at all. And so I do have to welcome the Michigan State fans. Where are you at? Okay. And then the Michigan fans. Yeah, there you go. All right, it feels like we have a house divided, but uh, it, it's, it's going to be a good day nonetheless, and if you have no idea what we're talking about, welcome to Michigan. That's how it goes. So anyway, uh, we're in the fifth week of a series called What is the Bible? And as I've said all along, I'm convinced this is some of the most critical material we've ever explored together as a community. And based on the responses that you're sending me by email, uh, you're feeling that, that same thing. Lots of great conversations happening around what we're talking about um, on Sundays. Uh, so for six weeks, I'm giving you my admittedly not fantastic orientation to the Bible. Uh, we're chasing down the question, what is the Bible? And my hope is that when you see the Bible for what it is, you'll fall in love with it as I have and maybe even decide you want to start reading it regularly for yourself if that's not normally your current rhythm. Uh, but if you've ever tried to read the Bible, uh, you have noticed that it can be a bit confusing and frustrating. And as we've said each week, kind of start uh, at the same spot again today, uh, this is why it can be so confusing. Though the Bible looks like a book, and it does, it comes with a cover, it has a table of contents, it has maps in the back, right? It looks like a book. It doesn't exactly read like a book because it's not really a book. It's not a book, it's actually a collection of books. It's a small library of books. In fact, it's 66 books by around 40 authors, written over 1,500 years of time on three continents in three different languages. And the authors were real people in real places, living real lives that were influenced by the economic and political and religious realities in which they lived. And so the Bible is not exactly what it first presents to be. And that helps us understand why it can be so challenging to read. Well, in light of what we've discussed so far, I want to take a f um, today, what I want to do with our time is to talk about one of the most important figures in the history of the Western world, as well as the history of the Bible. And his name is not Jesus, which is what you were probably thinking I was going to say. Uh, but before I introduce him to you, I need to take a few minutes and catch you up if you haven't been with us so far in this series, because we're kind of building uh, each week upon what came before. In week one, we began our orientation to the Bible by noting something that a lot of people miss, and it goes like this. Uh, without a resurrection, there would be no Bible. In other words, uh, you need to know that when you study the story of the Bible and how it came into our hands, it doesn't actually start in Genesis it starts that first Easter Sunday. Because the only reason anyone wrote anything about Jesus was because he returned from the grave. Without the resurrection, the story of Jesus would simply not have been worth telling. He would have been just another first century rabbi who was crucified by Rome, who had made some big claims about himself and never really came to anything. But Jesus did rise from the grave. And after he did, many of his followers went back and wrote down what he said and what he did. Because in light of the resurrection, everything Jesus said and did was validated. And it cleared up a whole bunch of Jesus' teachings. It had confused them up until that point. Well, a lot of Christians recorded the events of Jesus' life. Eventually, four of these accounts made their way into the New Testament of your Bible. Uh, when you open to the New Testament, it actually begins with these four accounts. They're called the Gospels. Gospel just means good news. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. So that's what we talked about in week one. 
Now, with that foundation in weeks two and three, uh, we made the observation that the Bible is organized around covenants that define the terms of relationship between God and people. And we said the two most famous covenants in the Bible are the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Covenant and Testament mean the same thing. Or the New Covenant or the New Testament. And the Old Covenant defines the terms of relationship between God and ancient Israel. And the New Covenant divine, uh, defines the terms of relationship between God and the world. And this idea brings us to another critical reality. And we've spun here for a bit too. Uh, though all of the Bible was written for you, not all of the Bible was written to you. And the preposition makes a big difference. What this means is that God's promises to ancient Israel are not the same as his promises to you. And God's commands to ancient Israel are not the same as his commands to you. In fact, um, in preparation for this, I, was, I did a bunch of reading and one of my favorite Bible nerds wrote about this. His name is Wayne Grudem. And how you ask, do you become a Bible nerd? Well, if you're the general editor of the ESV Study Bible, Nerd. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, very, very uh, popular, influential theologian. And in a recent book called Christian Ethics, which I read so you wouldn't have to, you're welcome, right? Here's what Wayne Grudem talks about. And he's, again, studied the New Testament. Here's what he tells us. He says, it's important to realize that the author of the New Testament letter called Hebrews is not saying that some old covenant laws are no longer binding on Christians, but that the old covenant itself that entire system of laws that defined the relationship with God and his people is no longer in effect. And, and here's what I've found in conversations with you and others around this topic. Most of us didn't understand this growing up because when someone gave us a Bible, they never really explained to us what it was. They just gave it to us and maybe you had your name on it in gold letters. Anybody have that still lying around? Right. Uh, they never explained what it was. They said, this is God's word and it is for you and you read it and you try to live your life by it. And that's really a great idea until it isn't. Because to be honest, Jesus wouldn't want you to do many of the things you find in the old covenant. Some of those rules were for them then and not for us now. And this reality has all sorts of wonderful implications for us today, including that we now can enjoy bacon at church potlucks. Come on now, right? I mean, that's, that alone, you're like, I'm in. I got it. I understand. The whole nerd guy quote, not sure, bacon, I'm with you. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, la then, so that was weeks two and three. Then last week, we noted that the early Christians who were not from a Jewish background, the Gentile Christians, had total clarity on the separation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Consequently, when they began to study the Old Testament, they didn't do so because they were interested in Jewish religion. The early Gentile Christians began to study the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures because they were interested in Jesus. And so early on, they appreciated the Old Testament for what it was, the history of God preparing the world for his son to come and rescue it. So now all of that sets the stage for the introduction of one of the most important figures in the history of our world, and he was a first century church planter named Paul. Now, if you've ever read any of the New Testament, you've probably read something Paul wrote. It's not an exaggeration to say that Paul's letters have shaped Western civilization. But when Paul first steps onto the pages of history, he went by a different name. He went by the name Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was his hometown, and Saul was his Jewish name. But Paul was also a Roman citizen, and so he also had a Roman name, Paul. And when Paul begins to plant 
churches all around the Mediterranean Rim in the Roman Empire, he goes almost exclusively by his Roman name, Paul. So, and amazingly, when we first meet Paul, when he first walks onto the pages of history, uh, he's not a church planter. He's actually a Christian hunter. He's playing for the other team. Uh, He was offended by the way Jesus followers had hijacked the Jewish scriptures to make them say something he believed that they did not say. And professionally, when we meet Paul, he was a Pharisee. He was a professional Jewish religious leader whose full-time job was to be good. If you said to the Pharisee, what do you do? I study the Old Testament law. I try to live perfectly the Old Testament law. My full-time job is to be good. My whole life is organized around the Old Covenant. And so Paul saw the mission and the message of Jesus as a dangerous perversion of what God intended. Moreover, he saw the mission and message of Jesus for something else that it was, a threat to the establishment. And so Paul, thinking he was defending what God wanted, went to the capital city of the Jews, Jerusalem, went to the high priest and received authority to go arrest Jewish people who had chosen to place their faith in Jesus. And in his letters, Paul actually confesses to being responsible for some Jesus followers actually losing their lives. Nonetheless, God saw Paul as the right man for an incredible job. And one day God recruits Paul and he's actually on his way to arrest Christians. He recruits him to take the message of Jesus to the Roman Empire. In fact, if you're a skeptic and you're here kicking the tires and I'm thrilled you're here, one of the most compelling things about Paul's life, one of the things you really have to wrestle down historically is that Paul's perspective on Jesus pivots suddenly and dramatically. In the course of a single afternoon, he goes from a law-abiding Pharisee out to destroy the church to a fully sold-out, committed Jesus follower. And you say, what in the world happened? And Luke, in his account of the early church called Acts, and Paul, in one of his letters, tells us what happened. Paul had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And if Jesus is back, then everything has changed. And Paul knew that. Again, he was the right man for the job. So with the rest of our time today, what I want to do is talk about three ways Paul impacted the Bible and consequently the faith of countless people over the last 2,000 years. I also want to consider what Paul would want to tell us when before we got our first Bible. So you're getting like my orientation of the Bible, which is kind of marginal. Paul's orientation, lean in and listen. I think this is what Paul would want you to know about the Bible as you read it for the first time, as you engage in reading it again. So to begin with, uh, the first point, Paul wrote some of the Bible. Paul wrote letters to churches he planted and to individuals he knew around the Mediterranean Rim. And 13 of these letters survived and eventually were collected and bound together with the Hebrew scriptures and some other early Christian writings as the Bible. Um, Here is a table of contents um, that I constructed for you. The yellow designation here are the letters of Paul. So right in the middle of the New Testament, you have all of the material attributed to Paul. He was a big, big deal. Initially, his letters were circulated and copied. They were seen as incredibly valuable. And eventually, the early church began to see them as sacred. It's also worth noting that when Paul was writing these letters, he didn't know he was writing the Bible. I think in the first century, uh, he couldn't even have imagined that his letters would be bound with other significant works in a book called the Bible that halfway around the world 2,000 years later we would, be, we would be studying. So number one, Paul wrote some of the Bible. Number two, Paul 
explains the relationship between parts of the Bible. In fact, if you've ever been confused about how the Old Testament and New Testament work together, look to Paul. He explains how followers of Jesus today should view and use the Old Testament. And again, he knew how because he was an expert in the Old Testament law. He knew the Old Testament law inside and out. Moreover, Paul believed with all his heart that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant were fundamentally incompatible. And he actually writes as much to early Jewish Christians living in Rome. So imagine with me that you've grown up in a Jewish household. Your life has been organized more or less around the old covenant laws that God had given through Moses to the ancient people. And you're living in the capital of the Roman Empire, the most influential city on the planet. You come to a place where you place your faith in Jesus. And almost immediately, you're learning that this new covenant has come. But it leaves you with this question, what do we do with the old covenant? Not necessarily the traditions, but as far as our relationship with God is concerned, what are we supposed to do? And so Paul writes a letter to them. It's called Romans. And he explains this fundamental incompatibility and in fact that in Jesus, God had done something entirely new. Here's what he says, Romans 7, verse 6. And again, he's writing to the Jewish Christians. He says, but now, by dying to what once bound us, Okay, he's like, it's almost like the old covenant laws. That was what connected us to God by dying. What was what once bound to us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit that comes and indwells whoever says yes to Jesus. He says, this is a new way that God wants to relate to us, a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul comes along and says, God has done something new. God has done something Better And actually, the Old Testament prophets pointed to this to this day. I did a little work on this Greek word old, and it's fascinating because you could also translate the same word obsolete or outdated. And you're like, Paul, them's fighting words. And they were in the early church, right? But Paul had extraordinary clarity about a Christian's relationship to the Old Testament. It wasn't something to be blended with the new covenant. In Jesus, that old covenant has become outdated or obsolete. In fact, if Paul had been there the first day you got your first Bible with your name on the cover, I think this is what he would have told you. He would have said, read the Old Testament for inspiration and motivation, but take your application, in other words, how you're going to live, from Jesus' new covenant command. So I think he would say, read it. It's the story of God preparing the world for the savior of the world. But when you read it, read it for inspiration, read it for motivation, but take your application from Jesus' new covenant command. Inspiration, because God's people struggled and God came through for them over and over and over again. Motivation, because God is faithful and when his people cry out to him, he responds. But remember, I think Paul would say the Old Testament is organized around a covenant between God and ancient Israel. And when Jesus comes, he inaugurates a new covenant. And Gentile Christians, along with Jewish Christians, are part of this new covenant. Therefore, when it comes to knowing how to live your life, manage your relationships, take your application from Jesus' new covenant command. And I know what a few of you are thinking. Boy, that's really clarifying. What, what is that new covenant command again? We probably should figure that out. And I'm so glad you asked. So um, at the end of his ministry, Jesus gathered his followers at a last supper. And if you spent any time around Keystone, we return here a lot because this was the night that everything started to become clear for the first followers of Jesus. They started to see all of the threads that Jesus had been knitting come together into something 
beautiful. And so Jesus gathers his disciples for a last meal uh, before he's betrayed. And after dinner, he said something that they would have found absolutely incredible. He would have said, a new command I give you. And it's a familiar text, and so we sort of lose the impact. But if you're sitting there and you're one of Jesus' first followers, you would have probably thought, well, time out, wait a minute. Only God can give new commands, Jesus. And then the other part of your brain would have gone, yeah, that's true, but only God can heal blind people and raise the dead. So go ahead, Jesus, right? And as he continued, Jesus gave, gave them a new command that wasn't to be added to the others. Instead, it was to replace the others and become a defining ethic for the rest of their lives. Here's what he says. A new command I give you, love one another. But not just love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that's a very different sort of love. In other words, don't love as you've been loved by others and don't even love others the way you want them to love you. That's like the golden rule. We're clicking this thing up a notch. I want you to treat every single person in light of the way I have loved you, or rather God through me has loved you. And I think they sat there and they had memories of all the times Jesus had loved them radically and selflessly. But I would argue the next day, everything became crystal clear when Jesus staged a demonstration of love that took their breath away because it took his breath away. And I think as they watched him die on the cross, the full impact of what he meant by his words began to become clear. And then after the resurrection, the disciples regrouped and began to pursue living this this Jesus sort of love, the sort of love that their faith in Jesus required of them. And and this, this brings us to the third reason that Paul is important to the story of the Bible. So Paul wrote some of it. He explains the relationship of the parts of it. But also this, Paul explains how to apply Jesus' new covenant command in our lives. And this is where this becomes so, so helpful. Paul explains how to apply Jesus' new covenant command in our lives. In fact, Paul wrote those letters and they are filled with applications of Jesus' new covenant command. In fact, if you were to read Paul's letters, you should know that when you read his to-dos and to-don'ts, he's not giving you new commands. He's simply giving you applications of what it means to live your life loving other people in the same way that God, through Jesus, had loved you. Said more simply, and this is our big idea for today, every New Testament imperative is an application of what love requires. Every New Testament imperative, every New Testament commander rule is an application of what love requires. So let me give you a few examples um, how to use love as a filter when we read Paul's commands to Christians in the Bible. Here's an example. Um, Paul writes from, uh, in a letter to Christians living in a town called Philippi, uh, which is in Greece. Lovely, I'm sure, this time of the year. Here's what he says. He says, in your relationships with one another. So this is a big one, right? This is husband, wife, mother, child, employer, employee, uh, friends. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You go, what does that mean? And as he continues, he goes on to describe how Jesus came to serve and not be served. How Jesus never powered up in relationships, even though he had every right to. I mean, had Jesus gone to Disney World, he wouldn't have cut in line. Just absorb that, right? Because he did not come 
to cut or to leverage his authority, he came to serve. And so later Paul writes, if you want to be a good husband or wife or father or mother or son, all you need to do is have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let that be your guide. And you approach every situation asking, how can I help and how can I serve? And if you think about this, like this is almost terrifyingly clear. You don't need 10 commandments, 9 commandments, 8 commandments, 6 commandments, 117 commandments. You just set your course towards loving others and you'll know what to do every single time. Here's another example. Um, Paul writes a letter to his protege, Timothy. Timothy was a younger pastor serving in a city called Ephesus. Here's what, here's what uh, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this world to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, under the old covenant, you would do those things so that God would bless you. And that's not the reasoning behind what Paul writes here. You don't do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share so that God will bless you or so that God won't be mad at you. It's actually more simple than that. We're supposed to be generous as Christians simply because it helps the person that we're being generous to, right? This is very complicated. I'll go over it again. You give to them and it helps them. Thank you. I was really proud of that, right? Yeah. So to follow Jesus is to do what love requires over and over and over again. So Paul says, so do good and be generous and be willing to share because that's what it means. That's what it means to love like Jesus loved. Let's do one more um, from Paul's letter to early Christians living in Ephesus. Again, the same city where uh, uh, Timothy would have been a pastor. Here's what he writes to them. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So this is about the power of words. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Use your words to build one another up. And you say, okay, well, okay, Paul, um, why should a Jesus follower not talk badly about someone? Um, is it because it says in the Bible not to gossip or use unwholesome speech? It is in the Bible, but that's not, that's not the reason. Paul would argue that Christians shouldn't gossip because gossip hurts people. Gossip undermines the integrity of another person. And when you gossip, you're elevating yourself above that person at their expense. You simply cannot love as Jesus loved and gossiped at the same time. So it, it's, it's just interesting. You start to read all of Paul's commands through this lens and you start to see that all the New Testament commands are really just examples of what love requires. And God didn't give us an example for everything. He didn't need to. And you start to think about the implications of this, especially if you grew up in church especially if you grew up in a religious system that was constantly adding rules to your life to try to control your behavior. You start to think, if that's you, you're probably thinking, okay, I grew up in church. I grew up in a religious system. This is interesting, pastor guy, but this just seems a bit too easy, doesn't it? I mean, aren't you kind of throwing out the details? This feels a little Woodstock for Christians-ish, right? Isn't it just like a big love fest? Can't we all just get along? And if that's you, and it's a totally fair objection, I need you to lean in and I want you to think about something. Especially when you contrast what we just talked about with the system that you grew up in. It goes like this. Jesus' new covenant command is dramatically less complicated, 
but it is far more demanding. Jesus' new covenant command is less complicated, but far more demanding. The Old Testament had 613 different rules and regulations by which you were supposed to live your life. 613. And then, of course, when you have 613 rules, everyone is constantly looking for loopholes. So then the, the pastors of the Jews, the ancient Jews, the rabbis would come along and try to help you by putting more rules around the rules to help you follow all the rules. And after a while, the rabbinic law looks a bit like our tax code, right? Because people were endlessly trying to figure out how close they could get to sin and not sin. And that's how religion works. And Jesus comes and short circuits that whole system. This is why the Christian faith, when lived well, is so spectacular. Because when you follow Jesus, there's really no place to hide. There's no shortcuts. There's no workarounds. Because we almost always know the answer to the question, what does love require of me? And this question captures the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you start to think this is too simple, it's too easy, it's too watered down, just remember something. When your heavenly father asked this question, it cost him his son. And when your savior asked this question, it cost him his life. And then he invites you and me to follow him. And you say, well, what does that mean? Follow me. If I follow Jesus, I mean, can't, he's not on earth right now. How do I follow Jesus? I would argue Jesus would say to you, you just ask this question over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And then you do what love requires. So if Paul had been there on the day you got your first Bible, and he had the opportunity to talk to you, I think he would want you to understand that the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus and is full of inspirational and motivational stories. But in your behavior, take your cues from what God through Christ has done for you. And by the way, just a quick PS, after giving his followers this defining ethic to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Do you know what he says next? Like the next line, and this is just, we could spend a whole session on this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Like if you do this thing, if you begin to love sacrificially, love your neighbors, love your enemies, love your friends, if you start to love the, everyone, the world will know that you are my disciples. In other words, self-sacrificing love is supposed to be the brand of Jesus followers. I think we have some work to do, right? That's how we're supposed to be known. Not what day of the week we worship, not how we take communion, not how we practice baptism, not our system of theology, not which translation of the Bible we use, not which causes or people that we're for or against. Jesus says people should know that we are his follower because we've embraced the idea that we are to treat people the way God in Christ treated us. And as I was typing that last sentence this week, an old song came to mind, because I grew up in church. And it goes like this. Maybe you know it. And they will know we are Christians by our love. It's supposed to be that simple, and it's supposed to be that beautiful, and it's supposed to be that disruptive, and it's supposed to be that irresistible.
In closing today, we have a chance to take communion together. And it fits for a number of reasons. I mean, we already have revisited that last supper where Jesus instituted communion for his first followers, where he gave them an image that he wanted them to return to again and again and again. And it was an image that would ground them in that moment when he gave up his life to rescue them, to rescue them from sin, to rescue them from shame, to rescue them from fear. And you might even argue to rescue them from religion and invite them into something bigger and bolder and better. They're gathered for a meal that commemorates the day that God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, rescued the children of a man named Israel. And during this meal, Jesus takes a loaf of bread and he raises it up and he says, this is my body, which is about to be broken for you. And they didn't understand at the time, but they soon would. And then Jesus held up a cup of wine and he said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood, which is about to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And again, they're looking at him going, you're not bleeding, but he soon would be, and then they would get it. And then he said this, when you do this, remember me. Remember what I've taught you. Remember what I've showed you. Remember what I've called you to. Remember what I've invited you to. And so in just a moment, uh, the band's going to play. And you'll have a chance to come. And there's elements along the front and along the back. You don't need to be a member at Keystone to take communion with us. We don't have membership. We just ask that you said yes to Jesus and you're making an attempt to try to follow him with your life. And if that's you, you're welcome to come. And just to take the bread and remember the body that was broken and to, take, to dip it in the cup and remember the blood that was spilled. And remember, maybe even especially today, what that sacrifice means for you and your mission, even in this life. Let me pray for you, and then we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, we say thank you once again this morning for Jesus, for his brilliance, for his clarity, for his invitation, for his grace. Thank you for loving us when we didn't deserve to be loved, and I pray that you would give us courage to follow that same example and to demonstrate radical, self-sacrificial love to our friends, to our family, to our community, to our enemies, to the world. And I pray that they would know that we are your followers because of the way we love. And so we come to the table and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we remember and we say thank you in the matchless name the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, when you're ready, you can come.